0: Indeed, there's no one like you, O Lord. You're great, your name is great and might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due, for among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like you. If you turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to to continue looking there this morning. I want to thank you. I appreciate the Many messages and prayers and conversations I've had with with many of you so so thank you uh, for those of you who aren't aware last I see several weeks ago about 3 weeks ago a little more than 3 weeks ago my dad had a surgery related to his cancer and uh, 2 weeks ago we left after church and went down there to, to be with uh, mom and dad and kind of help with some of the, the post surgery recovery and uh, first couple of days things went okay and then uh, we ended up taking Dad to the the hospital. There was uh, some complications from the surgery, infection, things like that. And so, um, got him on some good antibiotics and a couple procedures, and and uh, doing a lot. Started doing a lot better. And then a week ago, we um, transitioned from the hospital to uh, back to their house. And then we left on Monday a week ago. So uh, doing well, um, you know. Obviously, kind of just a, a hard thing to recover from, and so. But uh, overall, doing well, and you can continue to pray for him and mom and my siblings as they're down there uh, working through things. Uh, want to really thank you for letting me be gone this past week. I, I contacted the staff and elders when Dad went to the hospital. And said, "Hey, um, what should I do here?" And very graciously, they encouraged me to to stay uh, longer. Especially want to thank Blake for. Preaching last week. I was able to listen to the service and to the message um, while I was in the hospital uh, right before Dad was discharged and just was really encouraged by being a a part of that uh, last week. So so thanks for that. But um, all that to say, it leaves us in kind of a a confusing place this morning. I don't know if you remember this, but we're in the middle of two different messages. Uh, We started a message. Four weeks ago, or something, and kind of got halfway as we introduced Deuteronomy, and then I said, "Okay, we'll come back to this." And then we started a message uh, two weeks ago in Matthew. I was talking to my sister about this, and and she said, "That seems really confusing for your church." I said, "No, they are very intelligent people. Um, <laughs> they watch lots of TV, and you know, with these complicated shows, and so uh, we can handle this. Okay, we can handle this." And to be honest, I'm not—I can't even remember. What Deuteronomy was about. We'll come back to that, uh, next, what, what the message was about there. We'll come back to that, but we're going to finish up what we were talking about, Lord willing, two weeks ago in Matthew. And just as a reminder, we were in Matthew 1, and we were looking at this uh, genealogy that Matthew gives us in chapter 1. And Matthew's genealogy is different than Luke's in terms of its emphasis. Matthew is showing us, hey, Jesus, this this baby who's born at the end of the chapter, Jesus has the the legal right, the authority, to be the king of the Jews. Now, there are a couple of things that are remarkable or unusual about Matthew's genealogy. First of all, it contains women. There are four women who are mentioned in the genealogy, plus Mary. And so that's a little bit unusual in this genealogy for a king. What's also unusual is that these women who are part of, again, this Jewish genealogy, the women, all the women who are mentioned besides Mary are uh, probably not Jewish, these Gentile women. And so that's a little bit unusual in this genealogy. And then the other thing that's unusual is that each of these women, again, this is a genealogy showing that Jesus has the right to be king of kings, the Messiah, the righteous one. Each of these women who are mentioned in the genealogy, are associated with with scandal. There's some sort of shame that accompanies them. Their presence here in the genealogy should encourage us, and we'll talk more about that as we continue. But if you're able to, we're going to read part, we're not going to read the whole chapter this week, uh, but we're going to read part of Matthew chapter 1. And so if you're able to, if you would just stand with me in honor of God, As we read part of Matthew chapter 1 together and we see these uh, four women plus Mary mentioned. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. There's the first woman mentioned. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Noshan, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, so there's the second woman mentioned, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by the third woman, Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David the king. David the fa- was the father of Solomon by, and here's the fourth woman by the wife of Uriah. And you go down, verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ, Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. And Father, we would ask for your continued grace on us as we look at your word. We pray that we would live our our lives in submission to this great king, the king of kings, Jesus, that we be uh, the beneficiaries of the redemption that's found only in him as we place our trust and confidence in him alone. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as we've seen before, as we've talked about this passage, we live in a weary world, a weary world that rejoices with the arrival of her king. And I'm sure that over the last few weeks, the weariness of the world has been shown to you in in various ways. Maybe for some of you, just kind of in the small imperfections in life plans haven't gone the way you wanted them to over the last few weeks appointments have been missed there've been the sniffles and the colds and the stomach flus and things like that it's the weariness of the world the reality of the fallen world has been manifest to you in some small ways annoying ways maybe some some relational uh, discord little arguments and and for some of you uh, the weariness of the world has been manifested in very profound ways. This Christmas and New Year's, you've been without a loved one for the first time, or you've been reminded of the absence of someone you love. Or maybe, <clears throat> for some of you, uh, the weariness of the world has been shown in, in uh, bad health news, or, or significant relational discord, or even just deep discouragement, depression. Depression. The fact that we live in a fallen world where things aren't as they ought to be, a world that is weary, all of us have been reminded of it in in some ways over over this this holiday season, Christmas and and New Year's. And as we, we saw last time we were together, we kind of looked at this main idea from Matthew chapter 1. We saw that the Christmas is not joyful because it's a beautiful world that welcomes our king. In other words, there's not this, this pristine world that says, okay, we're, we're so lovely, this is so beautiful, we are inviting the king to come and be a part of this, this beautiful world and we'll experience Christmas joy. No, instead, Christmas is joyful because there's a king who comes to a world that's weary. comes to a weary world and this king, Jesus Christ, proclaims redemption. That's why we can have joy at Christmas. Not because the world is this beautiful place that welcomes Jesus and we sing Christmas carols. No, the Christmas carols and and the joy at Christmas that we experience is based on this. This is a weary, fallen world that a king comes to, and this king in our brokenness proclaims redemption. Now, the first woman that we looked at several weeks ago uh, we, we looked at um, Tamar, and as we looked at Tamar, we saw that Jesus is the provision for the abandoned, and we, we looked at what uh, her story was, and what it represented to have, Jesus, have a, a redeemer for her, and how Jesus proclaims provision for the abandoned. The second woman that I want us to look at today is, the hope, is Rahab. And as we look at Rahab, what do we see about Jesus? We're going to see that he is the hope of the desperate. And if you would, turn with me to the book of Joshua. We're in the book of Deuteronomy, and then you turn over, and the next book is uh, the book of Joshua. And you look at Joshua chapter 2, and we are introduced to Rahab. Now, maybe you remember a little bit of the story of Rahab. Remember, the Israelites in Deuteronomy are encamped in the plains of Moab. They're getting ready to go into the land that God has promised them. And then in the book of Joshua, they, they go in and they enter, and there's the conquest. But before they have their first battle... Joshua sends some spies to Jericho to kind of get the lay of the land and to find out what's going on. In fact, you look at verse 1, Joshua tells the spies, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went. They go to Jericho, and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And this would not have been a a remarkable thing for them to do, two strangers come into a community. uh, A prostitute here would uh, probably be... uh, Lodged in this inn, and so this her, her home would kind of function in that way, and so it wouldn't be surprising for these guys to be there. Now, as we look at Rahab, we see her desperation in in a couple of ways. One, I think, is kind of implicit in the text; it doesn't go out and say this, but some of the words here used kind of describe a woman who's in a desperate circumstance. The word that's used here for prostitute is not. There's several different words that could have been used. One word would have described a person who is maybe a little bit higher in the social standings. She would have been uh, part of the uh, cultic worship. That's not the word that's used to describe Rahab. There's a word here that describes her, that describes someone at the uh, lower rung of society. And so we don't know a lot about her backstory. We know that she has a family, but we don't know how she arrived in this place that she finds herself. But surely, It's not too big of a stretch of the imagination to say she's a a woman who has been driven to this place by some sort of desperation. But we also see another type of desperation that Rahab has. She hides these spies, she protects them from the rulers of Jericho, and then we come to verse 9 and look at what she says to the men. She says, I know that, and she uses the word for Yahweh, I know that, "...that your God, the Lord Yahweh, has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, so you, God's people, were, were afraid of you. And I know that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites." who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for for Yahweh, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, what do we see here about Rahab and her desperation? Here is a woman who has been driven to this, this place of desperation through whatever circumstances in her life, and now she finds herself in this city, and she rightly recognizes that God, this, this one true God, is working with this people, his people, to bring, her, bring about destruction in this land full of, of very wicked people. And she realizes that she is absolutely powerless to to stop this. In other words, she's a woman who is in a desperate circumstance. she looks around her, she doesn't have the provision that she needs to even provide for herself or her family. What's more, she doesn't have the ability to deliver herself from this coming onslaught. So what does she do? In her desperation she throws herself on the mercy of the only one who can save her. Look what happens next. Verse 12. She says, Now then, please, please swear to me by God, by the Lord, by Yahweh, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and father mother my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death in other words what is Rahab doing here in her desperation she realizes there is only one hope that I have I don't have the ability to say to myself the only hope that I have is in placing my trust in this this God of this people and does she find redemption absolutely right the spies say, look, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. As the New Testament describes Rahab, it describes her two times, and In Hebrews, it talks about her faith. It talks about how the people conquered Jericho by faith. But then it also describes Rahab in the next verse, Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. In other words, it it says her faith. She trusted in God. She said, okay, I'm I'm going to to trust in God. And her actions demonstrated the faith that she had as she placed her hope in Yahweh. To you read the rest of the story of Joshua, she and her family indeed are saved. And it's very interesting what happens to her next. This woman, this person who's at the lower rungs of society, who has no hope, who's desperate, who places her trust in Yahweh God, what, is it, what happens next? Well, Judges 6 mentions her. Judges 6, you know what's happened to her? This woman who's on the outside has now become a part of the covenant community. She marries an Israelite. She becomes a part of the people of God. And then as as you go on, it traces her genealogy. She and her her husband, Salmon, have a, a son named Boaz. Remember Boaz? What does Boaz do? Boaz marries Ruth. Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son, David. Rahab this prostitute in the city of Jericho, a woman in very desperate circumstance who has no ability as she looks in and of herself to deliver herself or to deliver her people or to save her family in the near or 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 the far term, places her faith in Yahweh God and finds rescue. Now, how is this helpful for you and me? In a room this size, with this many people in it, at this time of year, I'm confident there are some who have a sense of, of desperation this morning. It's by God's grace that he brings Rahab to a point of desperation, apart from this desperation it's very likely that she never would have turned to Yahweh God for deliverance and in a room this size i'm confident that there are some who have as they, as they have come to a point of desperation I'm confident that there are some in this room who have had wrong responses to that desperation. just just one example. It's not something we talk about very often in the church, but I'm confident that in a room this size, this many people, there are some who've had some very dark thoughts as they've come to moments of, of desperation, right? It's a time of year where the dark thoughts seem to, to be very powerful. You know, there's a, a bridge in Nanjing, China. It's a four-mile-long bridge. On average, one person a week jumps off this this bridge and commits suicide. There's a a man who's volunteered there for decades, and he drives his moped up and down this four-mile stretch uh, trying to to rescue people. And he keeps a a blog, kind of a journal of what happens. And sometimes he's successful. So one July 25th, he he writes about a woman lying on the bridge and how he comes to her. He forces her on the moped. Uh, He says um, she's 45 years old today on July 25th. Her husband uh, is 51 years old. He's violent towards her. He mistreats her. She thought of killing herself, thought it would be better. However, he, he writes, she's silent when I talk to her of her 15-year-old son. In so moments, he's, he's able to, to help people. But he also, in his blog, writes about people he's unable to help. February 15th, 5.30 in the morning, middle-aged man jumps to his death. He was holding a photograph of his family. Right? This man who volunteers, desperate to help people, even as he's volunteered for decades, able to have saved over 300 people, even his, his works are, he would say, imperfect, and there's a sense of, of desperation he sometimes feels as he's unable to, to help people who are struggling with very dark circumstances. What I want to say is this, it's, it's not a bad thing to be brought to a point of desperation. That is a good thing that a, a loving God often does to us, to allow us to come to a point where we say, okay, um, I, I look around me and the people that, I, that God has placed in my life around me, they can't help me. That's not a bad thing to come to that point and realize that they in and of themselves can't give you what you need. It's not a bad thing to look inward and say, okay, as I look inward, the resources that I need to deal with the circumstances in life aren't, aren't there. That's not a bad thing to realize that. But what does God call us to do? In that moment of desperation, what does God call us to do? He calls us to look to his redemption. His son, Jesus, the one only one who can ultimately provide us with what we need in him. Desperation is a place where God invites you to turn from self-sufficiency to turning to complete trust in Christ. And Maybe God, maybe God even this season is doing that with you. Even though your brothers and sisters in and of themselves don't have the resources to help you, they can come alongside you by God's grace. Let them know let them know how you're feeling, what you're going through, and let them help you turn to Christ. That's what we see in Rahab. The hope of Jesus Christ is the hope of the desperate. Look at Ruth now. In Ruth, we find that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of the Disenfranchised. And several years ago, we spent a lot of time going through the book of Ruth, and hopefully, you remember some from her story. But uh, regardless, you want to turn over, if you're in Joshua, we can turn over a couple books to, to Ruth Joshua, then Judges, then the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth opens with a family moving from Bethlehem into the land of the Moabites. There's Naomi and her husband and her two sons. They go to the land of Moab because there's a famine where they're living. And as they go into the land of Moab, her two sons take some Moabite women as wives. And then disaster strikes, right? Naomi's husband and both of her sons die. And now she's left in this foreign land, an outsider, a widow. Her two daughter-in-laws want to come with her back to her home. She tells them not to, and one of them turns back. Her daughter-in-law, Orpah, turns back. But then Ruth remains. And Naomi says to Ruth, she says, Look, your your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God's Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth says this, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And she says, Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything. But death parts me from you. And Ruth and Naomi go back to the land, and they arrive in the land, and what are they? They're the disenfranchised. They're the disenfranchised. What does it mean to be disenfranchised? It means to be powerless. Ruth and Naomi are both poor. They're both widows. And Ruth arrives in the land as a sojourner, an outsider, so here they are, and they're in this this moment of of, of a weary world. They're they're uh, in this this land, and what has Ruth said? Ruth has said, "Okay, I'm I'm uh, I'm not going to go back to my people. I'm I'm going to go where where you go, and I'm going to to place my my confidence in your God. Your God is going to be my God, and may Yahweh Himself do anything to me, and more also, if anything but death, parse me from you." In other words, what is what is Ruth doing in in this? This moment of, of desperation and a powerless person she's saying I'm I'm putting my confidence in your God and what does God do God provides remember as we go, went through the book of Ruth we saw that God provides his redeemer he provides this man Boaz who serves as a picture of Jesus Christ and and what does Boaz say to Ruth Boaz when he encounters Ruth and he hears what she's done he hears that that this woman Ruth has decided to place her confidence in and in, in Yahweh, God, and to provide for her mother-in-law, Boaz says to her, May the Lord repay, this is Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Isn't that a, a beautiful statement? Boaz is saying, uh, you have chosen... To find refuge in, in Yahweh God, may, may you find that under, under him whose, whose wings you've taken refuge. May there be protection and re- redemption for you who are, who are powerless from the outside. And does she find that redemption? As we know, as we go through the book of Ruth, indeed she does. Boaz provides for her in incredible ways and, and takes her and Naomi. And this Naomi who said, call me Amara, call me bitter. Na- what does Naomi come at the end of the, of the book? She becomes a worshiper. There's redemption and there's joy and there's delight. Ruth goes on to become a part, not, not just kind of a part of the community, but become the, the, the great grandmother of David. The Davidic king. It's very interesting to me. Even even as I, I would say most of us in this room are not disenfranchised in the same way Ruth is. In, in terms of being powerless. There are certainly people who are in some, some very difficult circumstances. And... Disenfranchisement, the the feeling of an outsider. I think it manifests itself differently in in our culture, right? How is God going to provide redemption for us? I think, uh, as interesting, as I went down to Texas and was talking to people who were part of a church and several churches, and talking to people who were part of our church. Coming back, this this time of year, I think many people feel like like outsiders. So, okay, I'm I'm part of the group, but I'm not really part of the group. I'm not really part of the family the way I'd like to be part of the family. I'm not really part of the church the way that I'd like to be a part of the church. Or There's some, there's some group out there that I'd, I'd really like to, to participate in, and I'm, I'm just not part of that group the way that I'd like to be. That's, that seems to be universal. There's a, a book by C.S. Lewis, a, a fiction story called That Hideous Strength, and one of the main characters is a professor at a university and at the beginning of the story, he's really excited because he's finally become a part of the inner circle at the university, and he goes to to this, this meeting, he's part of the inner circle, and he realizes, oh wait, I'm not really part of the inner circle, there's like a a secret inner circle. And that's where the real power is. And so he, he goes and he becomes a part of that. And then he gets there and he realizes, oh, uh, there, there's another inner circle. And if once I get a part of that, then I'll really be in the end and the know. And he, he always, as he goes from inner circle to inner circle, he's always on the outside recognizing I'm not really where the, the power's at. I'm not where the, the, the real decision-making is taking place. And finally, almost too late in the novel, don't want to give too many spoilers away, um he realizes there there is no inner circle. (laughs) For those of us who are in Christ, there can be a temptation, even in Christ, to believe there's I'm disenfranchised I'm, I'm powerless there's there's some other group or some other place where I'm going to find my significance there there's a professional organization and once I can become a part of that professional organization then I'll, then I' will have arrived and i'll be i'll have'll have the power that I'll need to be part of the group that I need to be a part of or there's some family relationships and you know my my sisters are really close and boy if I could really get in with that sister then then I'd be part of the family the way that I need to be part of the family or there's a, a church relationship and there's some people and I, if I could be a part of that group within the church then then i'd really would have arrived and and, and be a full functioning member of where I want to be or the community of faith or whatever it is. Here's here's the reality. Here's, and I I want to say this gently, right? Um, There is no relationship in your life. There is no relationship in your life that's significant enough to bring you joy if that's where you're going to find your joy. You're not going to find it. There's no relationship that you can encounter in life that's going to be a significant enough relationship to bring you the joy that you want if that's where you're going to find the joy. This has been something the church has struggled with since the very, very beginning. In Galatians, this is, I I think... uh, I've spent a lot of time in Galatians recently, and in Galatians, you know, there's some Gentile Christians, and they've they become Christians, and they're kind of excited, yeah, we're Christians now, and then some, some Jews come, and they say, hey, that's really cute, nice that you guys are Christians, but if you really want to be part of the Christian community, you need to become Jewish, because we're really part of, you know, so let's, let's talk circumcision. And Paul hears about these, he's like, guys, 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 no, that's, that's not Right? Galatians three, he says, Look, um in Christ Jesus, this is Galatians three twenty six, in Christ Jesus you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have put on on Christ. In other words, hey, if, if you are if you're a Christian, you're now in Christ. There is no other part of a community to, to aspire to. You're in. <laughs> You're part of the, the, you're in Christ. There's no greater relationship for you to aspire to. In Christ, this is verse 28 of Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring's heirs according to promise. You don't need to do anything else to get to be more Jewish. You don't get to be more Jewish than Abraham's offspring. And if you are in Christ, you're in, Paul says, the Galatians. In other words, what, the, what we struggle with today, feeling outside, disenfranchised, not part of the cool group, it started at the, with, you know in the very beginning, right? It's something we've always struggled with. Here, here's the radical mind shift that needs to take place as we think about who Jesus Christ is. If I am in Christ, if I'm in Christ there is no group that I need to be aspiring to be a part of. I'm not, I'm not some outsider aspiring to be a part of some other thing. If I am in Christ, I am an ambassador proclaiming to other people the joy of coming to where I'm at. In other words, I, instead of saying, boy, I wish I was there, I wish I was there. I, I'm an ambassador. I'm proclaiming to people, look, let me tell you about Jesus Christ and how in him you can be a part of his family. You can be in Christ as well. I'm not some person seeking to be a part of something else. I'm an ambassador proclaiming to people the joy of coming to where I find myself by God's grace. It's a powerful paradigm shift for us, right? As we look at Ruth, we see that Jesus Christ is a redeemer of the disenfranchised. The fourth woman that I want us to look at is Bathsheba. In Bathsheba, we see that Jesus Christ is the justice for the powerless. Now, there's some things here in the story of Bathsheba that are hard for us to know exactly what's going on. But if you want to, you can turn here to uh, 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, we encounter Bathsheba for the first time. In 2 Samuel... um, David has stayed behind while his troops go up and. What I say here? Second Samuel 11. In Second Samuel 11, David has stayed behind while his troops have gone on uh, to fight, and it says that um, he remains in Jerusalem. And late one afternoon, he's arising from his couch. He's walking on the roof of the king's house. And he sees from the roof a, a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful, very beautiful. And David sent, he inquires about the woman, and, and they say, look, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In other words, uh, this is Uriah's wife, David. That doesn't deter David. David sent messengers, and then the word here says took. That, that's a word that can often imply... Uh, almost a, a a forceful undertone to it. There's there's a a grabbing, a, a taking, a forceful taking. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, so what what exactly is taking place there? That the text isn't explicit. One possibility is that this was just a a very f- forceful encounter, an assault, or a rape. That's not clear in the text. It seems more likely that it was a. Uh, a, a power move on the part of David. As you see the, the dynamics that unfold, as you see Nathan rebuking David in 2 Samuel 12, what clearly is happening here is David is using his position as a, as a king, as a person in a position of power, to take advantage of Uriah's wife Bathsheba. And it seems that he gets away with it. He gets away not just with the abuse of her, but the murder of Uriah and, and these other soldiers. And then, of course, his reckoning comes in second Samuel 12 and throughout the rest of his life as he deals with the aftermath of his sexual sin. But what do we see in Bathsheba? We see redemption, right? David has to confess his sin, and, and in fact, in the psalmist, he confesses his sin. He says, you know, I've sinned against you, God, and what we see is that ultimately God is holy, and so, of course, all sin is against him, but also God is the, the God of the powerless, and so David's sin against Bathsheba is also a sin against God in that sense as well, and yet, even in this, in this sin, this, this sexual sin, this abuse of the powerless by the powerful, what do we see? We see Redemption. Bathsheba, by God's grace, receives redemption. Her son becomes the king. Nathan the prophet works with her. There's redemption through this this prophet Nathan as well. And ultimately, she also becomes a part of the messianic line. She becomes a descendant of Jesus himself. Now I I selected this passage to talk on uh, several months ago before kind of all this this stuff came out in our in our culture and maybe of course you you've been seeing all the different stories of of uh, particularly men in powerful positions who have um been abusing women in the workplace and other circumstances I, I think that as of last count there were over 100 men who had been uh, accused of wrongdoing and of just just terrible offenses against women. I don't know the truth of any one of these these stories, but what I do think we're seeing is this. I think what we're seeing in our culture, by God's grace, is, is a reckoning. In our culture, we have uh, treated women very harmfully. We've objectified women. We've engaged in, in sexual sin. And now... Our culture is realizing. Wait a minute! Whenever we treat women this way, huh? It, it's it's harmful. In fact, as you look at the defenses that some of these men have given, they're just uh, they're just gut wrenching, right? Guys are saying things like, um, "Boy, I had no idea that that she wouldn't enjoy this. I, I I'm just I'm completely surprised that she found this offensive. I'm terribly sorry. I had no idea that would that this conduct of objectifying her would would make her feel demeaned in any way. It's it's it's, gut, it's It's just nauseating in terms of the defense, right? There's a political rally where a candidate had been accused of terrible things and his friend, his friend came out and said, no, no, I know this guy is a guy of integrity. We went to a brothel together and he walked out because there were underage girls there. That was, that was his friend defending him. We live in a sick world, right? We live in a sick world, a weary world that, that needs redemption, and by God's grace, we're, we're at a moment in our perhaps in our culture's history where we're, we're saying, "Boy, this is this is more harmful than we knew, and the way that people are twisted is, is far deeper than we knew." And, and the church has an answer in the person of Jesus Christ. I read a story just this morning about the Academy uh, of Motion Pictures saying maybe we kicked out this one guy too quickly because we kicked him out. He was kind of the the spearhead at all, but now we realize there's like, are we going to kick out everybody? We're in a weary world. We're in a weary world. What do we do? Where's redemption? It's in Jesus. And maybe this morning you're a person who has been a victim of of sexual sin. Someone has sinned against you. Now, now what's your hope? Your hope is that in Jesus Christ, the past is past. And in Jesus Christ, you are are a, a person who is protected by the God of all justice. The women here in this passage have been harmed in, in significant ways. In fact, most of them are, are victims of sexual sin. Apart from sexual sin, their, their stories will be much different. Rahab and, and Tamar, Bathsheba, all of them in particular are, are the, the products of, of people being very abusive toward them. And, and what do we see? We see that, that in, Christ, in Christ, sorrow is replaced with joy. The past does not define who these women are. It only serves to proclaim God's greatness through their stories. That's, that's one application I think we have from this. We think about Jesus being the justice for the powerless, particularly in regard to sexual sin. But what's the other application? Brothers and sisters, but perhaps brothers in particular, um, this can't have any part of our lives. By God's grace, by God's grace, uh, we can't participate in the deeds of wickedness. Right? Let me say some blunt things. Uh, this is John Piper commenting on his on his media watching. This is what John Piper says, and his words are good but blunt. He says, "I have a high tolerance I'm watching TV or movies. I think uh, I have a high tolerance for violence, high tolerance for bad language, zero tolerance." for nudity. There's a difference, uh, the reason for these differences, the violence is make-believe, they don't really mean those bad words, but that lady is really naked and I am really watching. And Somewhere she has a broken-hearted father. In other words, as we participate in these deeds of wickedness, we're part of, very often, very often, part of perverting justice for the powerless. We're contributing to a culture that harms people particularly women. Piper goes on, I'll put it bluntly, the only nude female body a guy should ever lay his eyes on is his wife's. The few exceptions include doctors, morticians, fathers changing diapers, etc. Job thirty-one-one. i I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What the eyes see really matters. Everyone who looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5.28 Better to gouge your eye than to go to hell. Verse 29. Brothers, continues Pipers, that is serious, really serious. Jesus is violent about this. What are our eyes? What we do with our eyes can damn us. One reason is it is virtually impossible to transition from being entertained by nudity to an act of beholding the glory of the Lord. This means the entire Christian life is threatened By the deadening effects of sexual entertainment. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace in our Redeemer Jesus Christ, let's not be part of a system that harms the powerless, at times powerless. Let's be part of a Redeemer in Christ who seeks justice for the powerless. Mary, last woman here, Mary. Mary, we see the joy of the favored. And we're not going to talk to her, talk about her in the same level as these, as these other women, but what do we see in Mary? So she's the one of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. She's called the favored one. And she has in Christ joy, right? That's where joy is found in this Redeemer. Now John 17, three, Jesus says, I'm I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus Christ comes not to a pristine, beautiful world, right? Jesus Christ comes to a weary world. As he comes to a weary world, he says, he says to the abandoned, redemption. And he comes to the desperate and he says, Redemption. He comes to the powerless, to those who are the outsider, and he says, he says redemption. He comes to those who are the abused, to those who are the powerless, to those who have had justice perverted for them. He says redemption. By God's grace, Jesus Christ comes to a weary world. And he says you will not find what you need in and of yourself. You will not be able to experience the joy that you desperately desire to have apart from me. Come to me. Place your faith and your confidence in me alone and receive my joy. At Christmas, a powerful king comes to a weary world and says, Redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we have in his name. We pray that by your grace, this time of year, we would seek our complete joy in him and in him alone. And then as we find our joy in him, we proclaim that joy, welcoming others to be a part of this joy with us as well. We pray this in his name. Amen.